Father, we come before you now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Lord, we just ask that you speak to each of us. Lord, I pray that this message would, would cross all the lines of where we are, from the mature to the newborn, to those who are unsaved. Lord, that you would speak to every one of us. Lord, give us ears to hear this word and the grace to apply it to our life. In the precious name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Excuse me, 15. Matthew chapter 15. It's interesting when you look in Scripture and you see who Jesus praised. And you don't find a lot of that. He doesn't praise a whole lot of people. And when you really look at who he praised, it's kind of even shocking because it's not who we would normally think. I mean, wouldn't we think that it'd be uh, among the apostles and especially like Peter, James, and John or something like that? And uh, really, they get a lot of rebukes. They don't get the praise. <laughs> You know, so who is it that Jesus praised? Um, the first category are those who had great faith. And you know, there's only two of them in the New Testament that are praised for their faith. And neither of them are Jews. And neither of them are, are in the place of fellowship with God. They are actually entering into the place of fellowship with God. And that's the centurion and the Canaanite woman. And we're going to look at the Canaanite woman this morning. Then you have uh, those who who he prays for their great devotion. And uh, basically, we have only one person. One person made that, made that group. And who was that? It was Mary. Mary, who was praised when she was sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Mary, when she was anointing the feet of Jesus, just before his, his uh, death and, and uh, crucifixion. And uh, that's pretty interesting. So one person alone is praised for their great devotion. And then you have this other category that doesn't say it directly, but I think it can be very applied, and it's, it's he praised those who were desperate. Now, that's a bigger category. There's many people that could fall in that, that category, but uh, the two I can think of here is going to be the sinner woman uh, that's in the Gospel of Luke, which I happen to believe is Mary. And so if that's Mary, you have this precedent where she's coming to salvation and she's this desperate woman being extravagant in her expression of, of, of devotion to Christ in coming to salvation. But then you see that expression go on in various aspects of her life. So something had been set in motion in her life. I think that's a very uh, a beautiful expression there. And then also the Canaanite woman. And so we're going to look at the Canaanite woman. So the Canaanite woman, she is, uh, some of your Bibles might say she was Syrophoenician. So she was of uh, Phoenician descent, which came from the Canaanites and uh, would have been in the Syrophoenician area of, the, of that part of the country there. And uh, being that she was a Syrophoenician, she was a Gentile. She was not Jewish. She did not worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She would have actually worshipped the pagan gods that the Canaanites worshipped and probably also some of the Roman gods. So that would have been her life. That's what she grew up with. And you know, the thing is, when you grow up in something, you think that's normal. And it doesn't matter how twisted or perverted it is. But if you're a little child and you grow up in something, then you think that's the way it's supposed to be. And you look at everything else and, well, something's wrong. Why aren't they like my mom and dad? Why aren't they like our home? What's, what's wrong with them that they're not like us? Because that's very typical for us to think that's normal. She grew up in a pagan culture. She thought that was normal. She thought that's what she was to do, and that's how she was to live. And, uh, yeah, the clip is missing on this thing, and it is being rather irritating. <laughs> So, you know, you have this woman that's raised in this pagan culture, and that's all she knew, like I said. And uh, she has a daughter, as we're going to see in a moment. And so she raised her daughter in that culture. 
All right, that's what she knew. Right or wrong, it's what she knew. And Jesus was going to break into her life in an interesting way, and we'll see this, because it's not something that I think necessarily we would want to experience in the same way, but it was what was necessary for her. Somehow, she came to hear about Jesus. We're not told this part of the story, but she came to hear about Jesus. And when we look at this, and even as I, I was praying about this message and processing it all and everything else, when you look at this, she, is, she had to gain a lot of knowledge about Jesus. So she had to not just hear about this, this Jewish prophet from her maybe mindset that was out there doing all these miracles, but she had to inquire she had to say, what's going on? Who is this man? Why is all these things happening? So she's wanting to know this because she's going to present something that from a, a pagan standpoint is actually pretty radical. And so it's in, uh, in, in the uh, first verse there of it, uh, what, verse 24, it says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My little daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. So what does she do? She comes up and she says, Lord, son of David. Now, not Lord is what we would as Christians referring to him as Lord God, but she's probably saying sir type of thing, giving respect. She didn't understand his divinity. She did understand that he was a man that had power. She did understand that. Now, she might not have comprehended everything, but she was comprehending enough to know that Jesus had the ability to heal her daughter. And what does she do? She calls him son of David. The Pharisees weren't doing that. But you know what? They knew who he was. They knew. Because all that stuff was on record. The Jews were, were, were very meticulous in keeping records of their birth, especially for the tribe of Levi, because from that came the Levites that took care of the temple and the priesthood. So they were very meticulous about that. But also about the tribe of Judah and the line of King David. They were very meticulous about that as well because they wanted to know who was the lineage of David. That was all on record. I guarantee you the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin had gone and looked at the records and knew what the record said about who Jesus was, that he was of the lineage of King David, both from Mary and from Joseph, his adopted father. It's astounding, this whole situation. She is acknowledging it. She's acknowledging this. She's saying, son of David, so basically what she is saying, Jesus, I comprehend that you are the rightful king of Israel. And so that's pretty impressive that she's acknowledging what the religious Jews wouldn't, what most of the, the Jews wouldn't. She was acknowledging what the apostles and disciples were just barely starting to come into and comprehend. She understood it and she accepted it and she believed it to be a reality. So the first thing that happens with this woman is she comes and she acknowledges Jesus' authority. You have the authority. You are, are, are a son of David. You have the right to the throne of Israel. I know that you have power. I've heard all the stories. Maybe she saw some of it too. Maybe before she went and, and, and went to Jesus herself, she was watching him, listening to his messages, seeing the miracles as she did, her faith being built up to the place of saying, I realize that nobody can help me except this one person, this one man, this one Jewish prophet. And so what happened is she came to the place to acknowledge her need. You know, we really don't want that. Because what acknowledging the need is was acknowledging her absolute helplessness. She could not save herself. She could not save her daughter. She couldn't stop her daughter from suffering. Those of you that are mothers, you'll really understand that, right? You know, you see your baby suffering, and what do you want? You'd be willing to take the suffering on yourself that your child would not suffer. And so here you have this woman that has, has watched her daughter suffer, and I guarantee you she had tried everything in her knowledge from her culture to try and see her daughter delivered. Now, she might not have understood that her daughter was demon-possessed, just having whatever symptoms it was, that was going on. We're not told what they are. So she maybe went to the doctors in her, in her hometown and went to different people. And when it started finding out none of them could help, she started going to the spiritual, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, whatever it might be of their 
of whatever god that she principally worshipped and would go there to get them to diagnose it. And, you know, I mean, somebody that's demon-possessed can diagnose somebody that's demon-possessed. That doesn't take a Christian to do that. And so it was probably one of these, these religious uh, witch doctor kind of things, not that that's what they had there exactly, but that type of situation, this, this sorcery that was there that determined she was demon-possessed, and so now this woman is on a hunt to try and find some form of deliverance because nobody, none of the sorcerers, none of the people that they went to, none of the priests that she went to could deliver this woman, could deliver this woman's daughter. None of them. And you know, when it first began, there was probably some hope. You go to the doctor, the doctor says, do this, do that. And so she does it, no results. Things get worse and worse as he keeps going. The child's getting worse and worse. What's happening to the woman? She's getting more and more desperate. She's getting more more concerned and consumed with the reality of her daughter. And every time her daughter is manifesting, whatever that looked like, but whenever her daughter was manifesting, the agony that the mother went through, the helplessness that just grew inside of her. You see, we're never going to ask for mercy from God until we're helpless. Anybody here that you are not a true follower of Jesus, you will not come to Christ until you understand that you are utterly, absolutely helpless to save yourself. You are helpless to change your condition. So you go and you take one sin and you change it for another sin. You are still a sinner under the wrath of God. You haven't changed it. You cannot get yourself out from underneath the weight of your sin and the wrath that you deserve. You cannot. There's no person can do it, no religion can do it, nothing of this life can do it. There's only one who can do it, and that's Jesus. And until you understand, you are utterly and absolutely helpless to change who you are on the inside, you will not cry out for mercy. In your pride, in your stubbornness, in your resistance, you'll stop it and you'll figure, well, all I need is to do this or do that, and you'll try one thing or another, hoping that finally you'll hit the right thing, but you'll never hit it. Because it's not going to come out of this world. It will not happen from anything that comes naturally. And so she finally came to the end of herself. Now, we got to understand how, how radical this is, all right? We got to understand how radical this is. This woman was a Canaanite. And, you know, we all know, we understand, you know, and I'm not saying this from political correctness, okay? I'm saying this from a biblical aspect, that we are not to hate and be prejudiced, okay? There's no room for that in the Christian's heart. No room. Not allowed, all right? It is corruption of the heart. Those are things that are seriously wrong in the hearts of people when there's prejudice that's there. But let's look at the reality of the world we live in. There was prejudice that would have been between the Canaanites and the Jews, possibly even with the Samaritans. I mean, you know, the, the ethnic divisions, that's what goes on. That's what man does. Man hates, okay? So think of this as a woman that is finding herself in need and refusing to go to the remedy that the Jews have. You understand what I'm talking about here? She's refusing to do it until finally everything gets so bad, there's nothing in her culture. None of the doctors, none of the priests, none of the sorcerers, nobody could help her. And so she had to look beyond. She had to look beyond. She had to look in something else. And so here she hears of this this. this Jewish prophet. And I'm just guessing here, but you know, understanding human nature, I think this is pretty accurate that she's resisting doing that because of her pride, right? We got that pride that gets in the way. I don't want to go there to them. You know, and so you got this pride that's the hindrance to it, to it, and all the dynamics that there until eventually the desperation came to a point where the desperation was was hot enough, strong enough that she'd go into Israel and consider the Jewish prophet. And like I said, I don't doubt that she went and looked at Jesus, watched him what he was doing, listened to what he said until finally she came to the point and says, okay, I'm going to do that. Because you know what the other problem would be? It's not just the aspect that she had to cross the barrier into Israel, in essence, and go to a Jewish prophet. But if she went back home, she would have to go to the people, her own people, and say, none of my people could do it. None of us could do it. So I had to go to the Jews. 
right? I mean, you're talking, she now have to deal with those people. So she had to have enough desperation to go beyond just her going to Jesus, but realizing after going to Jesus, she has to go back and stand before her old friends, her old family. A lot of people don't come to Christ because they don't want to do that. They don't want to have to go back and say, I became a Christian to those who are friends and partiers and all the other things. They don't want to cross that line because there's so much pride still in them. They're not desperate enough. They're willing to even go to hell because of their pride. Crazy, absolutely crazy. But that's what really we do. And so she came to the point to understand her true need. And then with this, this is, a, this is hard. What I'm going to share here is, is really, really hard. She had to acknowledge her responsibility in making the problem. Now, when you go to the Gospel of Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, the account, it uses a, a, a word, a special word there, where this is a little girl. And the word there in the Greek refers to a little girl, maybe three, four, five years old. How does a three- or four-year-old girl get demon-possessed? Okay, this is serious. We've got to really, and, and there's some truths here that we've got to really understand. How does a little girl get demon-possessed? You see, the devil does not have the right to enter into a life uninvited. He does not have that right. I'm not going to say he doesn't have that power, but he does not have that right. God has put limits upon what the hordes of hell can do, and one of those things is he cannot enter uninvited into a life. So how do people become demon-possessed? They either do it one of two ways. Either they go into the demonic realm so deep that they literally ask for the demon possession, or they open themselves up so deeply to a particular sin that they've opened themselves up into the demonic realm and they become demon-possessed as a result. The devil cannot make somebody do that. He could not enter that little girl without that little girl inviting, somehow inviting that devil to come and possess her. So what would induce a little girl to open herself up to the demonic? This is serious. You want to know what it was? The wicked life of mama. Do you hear what I just said? The wicked life of mama. Mom lived a life that opened her daughter up to the demonic realm that opened the daughter up where she opened up. Why did she open up? Because the little daughter thought the life mama was living was normal. Whatever that meant. Because in the Syrophoenician, you know, Canaanite culture and, and religion, there was within the pagan gods that they worshipped was very sensual, perverted stuff. And so here she was in it, mama was in it, mama was bringing it home. Who knows what men she brought home, knows what things she brought into her house, what idols were there, and that little girl being raised in a demonic atmosphere ended up opening herself up to demon possession. You know, as, as an evangelist, I'm all over the country. I'll be leaving in the beginning of, of January. And um, one year, we're, we're, uh, we ended up, I don't want to go through the whole story how we got there, but we got at this, this uh, orphanage for, for Indians, for Indian children, Native Americans. And so this woman had uh, 10 little Indians, okay? I'm not saying that because a little saying, but they had 10 little Indians. And so uh, they were from, you know, pretty small up to, you know, mid-teens type of thing. And so we ended up going there just to talk with her and see what kind of ministry she was doing. And, and she had a crisis happen when we got there uh, that was with her father in Pennsylvania or something like that that got very sick. And so all of a sudden she says, will you take care of these 10 little Indians? I got to go. And all of a sudden we got, ah, you know, so, okay, well, we'll do it, you know. And so it was an interesting thing, but she said, there's somebody that is going to come help you. One of my helpers will be here. I'll make sure that she's here to help you. And this woman came, and she had two little Native American children, both of them in wheelchairs. Okay, you got to understand something about all these children, but these two in the wheelchair especially, they were all fetal alcohol syndrome children. Various degrees, but these two in those wheelchairs, I'd never seen it so bad ever deformed, 
basically no mind, just sitting in chairs, drooling. Who did that? Mama. Right? Nobody else to blame. Mama did it. So Mama did it to the ones that didn't have, have it really bad, but Mama did it to the one that had it real bad. Right? So your home and how you live makes a humongous difference in what you do to your children and to your family. You can be an absolute nightmare to your family because you're living a life so hostile to God that you've opened yourself up to the demonic and bringing the demonic into your home. People don't take the time to think about that. They don't think about what they're really doing. They don't think about the consequences of what their sin is. And I guarantee you this woman with her life didn't think about the consequences. But she could not repent until she understood the reality of her guilt. I mean, that's so serious. People won't repent until they've come to the place to really see their guilt before God. When they see their guilt before God, they are then given an opportunity to repent or harden themselves. And you know what happens when people start hardening themselves? That's where they go into depression and anxiety and all the other stuff, and they go deeper into sin because, you know, if they're not going to find Jesus' a solution, they're going to look for something else to be the solution, and there's nothing else out there, so they'll give themselves more and more over to wickedness. That's how it always goes, one way or the other. Either you are going to give your life to Christ, or you are going to rebel against Christ, and you are going to get worse in your sin. I might have made this quote before. It's from a man, uh, uh, just a, a fiery preacher from the 1600s. His name was Robert Bolton. And this is what he said. A man must feel himself in misery before he will go about to find a remedy. Be sick before he will seek a physician. Be in prison before he will seek a pardon. A sinner must be weary of his former wicked ways before he will run to Jesus. He must be sensible of his spiritual poverty and slavery under the devil before he will take up Christ's sweet and easy yoke. He must be cast down, confounded, condemned, a castaway, and lost in himself before he will look about for a savior. There are people who know they need to get right with Jesus. And they might pray a little prayer, but there's no change. You want to know why there's no change? They're not really desperate yet. They're not desperate. They know they need a fix, but they're not willing to surrender themselves. They're not willing to abandon themselves because they're filled with so much fear of man, which is also called pride. You understand, proud people are people that are afraid of everybody. I mean, that's what it is. Pride is fear of man. And so you, are, you have so much fear of man in you that you will not surrender your life to Christ because you're afraid of what everybody will say. Afraid of what they'll think. And yet you know you need to do what needs to be done to get your life right with Christ. And so you think throwing up some little prayer, oh God, forgive me, please, but you don't want to change. You see, this woman finally came, grew desperate. She finally grew desperate. But she wasn't there yet, okay? So Jesus is going to help her. She's going to help her get desperate. He's going to help her rise up in faith. So he loves this woman. We've got to understand, what, we're going to, what I'm going to share now, what goes on in the story, we have to see this is the love of God, though at first sight it doesn't look like it. But it really is because Jesus is out to accomplish something in this woman's life that could only be accomplished this way. And so he's going to do this particular work. And so what happens is, she comes up to Jesus and she says, Lord, have mercy on me. And it says that Jesus did not say a word. Let's get the setting here, okay? So I'm speculating, but I think it's probably a good possibility. Maybe it's at the heat of the day where the Jews became, because they're in desert, you know, they would really try and find shelter, or put up little shelters over their head to try and, you know, deal with it in the really hot time. So maybe Jesus was taking a break at the heat of the day. And what happened, there was... You know, his disciples and apostles were probably around him, protecting him, not, you know, they probably thought they were protecting, protecting him, but, you know, keeping the crowd from him so he could have a, a chance to rest. And this woman comes out, and she begins to cry out, and it says again and again, she did it, she did it constantly, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. You see this desperation rising up in, in her. But what does Jesus do? He hears her. He hears her. But he doesn't say anything. Now, what would you think that is? What would you take that as? I'm just trying to really be honest. 
the majority, 99.99999% of the people would cop an attitude at Jesus right there at that point. Well, he's not very loving. I came from Cana. You know, I came to go and see this Jewish prophet. What has he done? He's just, just, just brushed me off, won't even acknowledge my existence. Right? Isn't that what we do? We have our own little hissy fit. And then, especially in our culture, we get on social media and write all the bad stuff we could about him. Right? That's how we work in America. That's how it goes. You know? So that's what she would have done in her own way if she was not desperate. But she became desperate. You understand? Everything changes. Everything changes. How you act at this very moment would be very different if this building was on fire. You understand? You grow desperate. There's situations that begin to awaken a desperation. So now we realize our life depends on getting out. And what are you going to do? It starts, we start acting very different when we grow desperate. When you are desperate for Christ, anybody here that doesn't know Jesus, when you're desperate for Christ, you'll act like you're desperate for Christ. You will run to him. You will beg him to save you and not wait for the evangelist to beg you to come. Right? And you've not come yet. Because you've not grown desperate. So you've been stubborn. You've been resistant. You know what you need. You know you need forgiveness. You know you need a transformation in your life. And you are fighting against it for what benefit? What has it done you? What good has it accomplished in your life? And so he didn't say a word to her. And so what did the silence appear to outwardly? It appeared as rejection, right? That's what it appeared. Jesus wasn't rejecting her. She just didn't know what he was doing, nor did anybody else, but he knew what he was doing. Why is God silent? Okay, every believer in here, you've had times where you've had to deal with the silence of God, right? You pray and it's like, it's, you feel like it's a brick wall. Now there's reasons for the silence of God, and I'm not going to go super deep in this, I'm going to just touch on this so I can continue pressing on in this, but... Uh, of course, the obvious. Here's the most obvious reason why God grows silent to people. Because they're in the practice of sin. Okay? Your sin stops God from communicating to you other than what he would be saying, repent. Okay? And so you want to continue in your sin, don't be mad at God because he's not speaking. Because he's spoken already, to told you to repent, and you refuse to hearken to it, so you want him to speak something different to you. But he's not going to speak anything different to you because what you need is salvation. And what you need is to hear this God of salvation giving you the remedy to your sin, which is repentance. And so it's the goodness and kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Well, here's a terrifying verse. I want to scare you with a verse here for a moment. Psalms 50, verse 21. The Lord is speaking, says, These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now, we have to understand some Hebrew here to understand what's going on. Because without that, we read it and we don't get much from it. But when you understand the Hebrew and what's really being said there, all of a sudden things start to open. So here he says, you've done all these things and you thought I was like you. You thought I would just brush off your sin, that your sin was no big deal, but I'm not like you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to set them in order. I'm going to take your sins and set them in order. And the whole picture, that's military words. That's military phrases. I'm going to set them in order as this army that is marching against you. And that army gets bigger and bigger as each sin becomes another part, another soldier in essence in that army that's going to march against you. Terrifying thought. And yet the whole time, yet the whole time, what is God doing? Offering repentance. Because I have the ability to take that army and wipe that army away with my blood. I can take that whole army and it be done in, in one second. And all it takes is your desperation to fall before me and cry for mercy and turn from your sin. And that army of your sins disappears in a moment. He can also be silent because, okay, church... Now, I know that, that you're in a church that's a praying church. You have a praying pastor and a, and a pastor that teaches prayer and so on. But it uh, doesn't mean that people pray. He can be silent because you make no time for him. And so what happens if we're prayerless or we hardly have any time to pray 
because we get so busy and we don't see the reality and all of a sudden we're in a crisis. What do we want to do? We want, God, jump, jump to my attention right now. I'm calling out to you. But he says, I've spoke to you again and again and you refuse to listen to me. Now you're in crisis and you want me to jump to attention? Where were you with all the times I called, all the times I wooed you, all the times I, I invited you into my presence and you would not come? So he grows silent until we grow desperate enough to begin to say, God, something has to radically change my life. I can't keep doing what I'm doing and doing it the way I'm doing it. He can be silent because we refuse to surrender to him. You know, if God answers our prayers and we're unwilling to surrender, you know what we'll do? We'll continue in our, in our lack of surrender. We'll continue in our rebellion. So God has to back off and say, you know, I want to touch your life. I want to heal your hurts and pains. I want to deal with you and transform you. But I can't do it in your condition because if I were to do it, you would continue in your own life of sin and you'd be worse off than you are right now. So I have to wait until you finally come to the place where you are willing to see your need and grow desperate enough for change. He also grows silent because, well, we're not desperate for him. So anybody here that's not a true follower of Jesus, I mean, you may have prayed in the past, you may have prayed in the past week. And you may be angry at God saying, why doesn't he answer me? I pray and he doesn't respond. But if you're not desperate for him, he's not going to respond. He is a great God the only God, and he deserves the reward of his suffering, which is our passionate pursuit. And he waits until he's wanted enough. And then he's silent so often because we refuse to believe him. We refuse to believe what his word says. We refuse to believe his promises. So he says, I forgive. And so you ask God to forgive you, but you don't feel forgiven because you are not operating in faith to believe that God forgives. So you keep going, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. How many times do you have to ask? How many times is it that you got to keep going over the same sins again and again when God says he forgives and he removes our sins from us as far as from the east is to the west? And so either God is true and he's faithful to who he is or he's a liar. Either he forgives when we repent or he doesn't. You know, so what is it? It's a, it is a faith issue. So often we are so beat down because we refuse to believe the promises of God. And so we wonder why God is not doing something in my life. Why is the silence of God there? And because we've not believed him. We've chose not to believe him. Now what happens is this woman is such a noisy thing, okay? We are told that the disciples came up to Jesus and said, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. Send her away, man. This woman is really bothering us. And so we see from this that she didn't ask just once, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. She was saying it again and again. And who knows, maybe she's jumping around trying to look beyond the, the, the apostles and disciples that's trying to block her view. And she's trying to see Jesus, Jesus. I mean, she's growing desperate. She has to get to him. And so what do the apostles say? I mean, the apostles, the disciples, what do they say? Send her away. She's bothering us. Well, guess what? You go into ministry in any capacity, and people are going to bother you. <laughs> it's just, just reality, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I can say firsthand experience, yes. You know, people can be a pain. Okay? Have you ever been a pain? Have you been a pain to your pastor at times? Are you thankful that he has been loving and a good pastor and patient to help you not be a pain? <laughs> Sometimes we have our seasons where we still become a pain, but, you know, when we see the, the, the progress that's going on, then there's always hope with it. And so they didn't understand what Jesus was all about. They didn't understand his silence. They didn't even ask him about this, his silence. They didn't go say, why, why aren't you responding to this woman? No, just send her away. Send her away because they're being irritated. Jesus wasn't being irritated, but they were being irritated. And, and also, they had no compassion. I mean, you realize what's going on here? Here you have this woman says, I have a daughter that's demon-possessed. Jesus, you're, only my, you're my only remedy. Send her away. Okay, where else are you going to go? Where, where else could she go to find the remedy? 
where else? I mean, they didn't have compassion. Do you know how easy it is for us to not have compassion? To be so hard against the hurts and the struggles and the pains of others? Because guess what? You get, and I'm just saying this from my own personal life, how easy it is. You can get yourself so busy in ministry, you don't see people anymore. And then when you don't see people, they come up and they're kind of like a bother. I got my agenda here, and you're messing up my agenda. But guess what people do? They mess up your agenda because they're what's important to God. And so they didn't, they didn't see, you know, they, they weren't compassionate. So that's the first opposition where Jesus is silent. There's two more. And the next two get worse. The second one gets worse, but the third one, man, the third one is intense. And so he, she cries out, Lord, help me. And Jesus finally responds to her. And he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, what Jesus said is absolutely true. Okay, the, the, the plan of salvation, salvation history was going to come through the Jews and through the Jews, then it would, it would, through the gospel, explode to the world, okay? So that was the whole plan of God. And actually, it was explode prior to that, but Israel never did what they were supposed to do to take the message of, of, of uh, who this God is to a world. They didn't. They kept it all in themselves. And so he did come to them, but he came for all of mankind as well. You know, and Jesus makes enough statements in the, in the Gospels that we can understand that, that he's not looking just at Israel, but he's looking beyond it. But he's speaking some to this woman right now, says, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, how would you take that? I'm just, I just want to be, be realistic here about the world in which we live, okay? Let's just, let's just look at what's going on very briefly here with the whole issue of Hamas and Israel. And you have all the people, all these people all over the world that are protesting against Israel and they refuse to really see the absolute horrendous, raw evil of Hamas and what they've done. I mean, what they have done to people is, un, is unbelievable. Unbelievable. But they're on the, on the side of the, the, the people that have been driven by hell. And so there, all this prejudice, this anti-Semitism is coming up. Now imagine... If you move this here into a situation with Jesus, and this woman was a Palestinian, you know, and Jesus says, I was not sent to the Palestinians, I was sent to Israel. Okay, that's basically the picture that's there. And Jesus was not lying, he was saying the truth. He came for her as well, but he was telling her, says, I came to Israel to bring salvation to Israel so that through Israel it can go to the world. And so what would that be taken as? Prejudice? So here, now she leaves and takes off and goes on social media and talks about how prejudiced Jesus is, where it still would be that if she did such a thing, she wouldn't understand who Jesus is. She doesn't understand what Jesus is trying to do, just like the apostles and disciples didn't understand. But what's he trying to accomplish? He's trying to bring this woman to the place where she is so desperate, faith rises up and lays hold of the promise that Jesus is going to give her. That's what this is all about, to bring her to the place of faith. He loves this woman, and he wants this woman to get the promises of God and have her child delivered. But listen to me with this. This is serious. If this woman does not change, and her daughter is delivered, her daughter will be demon-possessed again, but in worse condition. So you know what he must do first? He must change mama. He's out after mama. Because if he changes mama, then when daughter's set free, there'll be an environment that will help that little girl to stay free. If that daughter is not, if the mother's not dealt with, that daughter's in trouble. So Jesus is going after this woman to bring change to this woman. That's what he wants to do to you. If you don't know Jesus, he wants to bring change to you because he can't change anybody else in your life until he begins to change you. He's wanting to change you so you can be an influence. And your unwillingness to change means you are hurting the people in your life that you say you love. Right? That's serious, isn't it? We never think like that, do we? So it takes the evangelist to come in or or a pastor that really tries to preach with the fire to bring those kind of thoughts out, right? And so what happened, somehow, however it happened exactly, somehow the woman found a little opening and right past all the disciples 
and she falls at Jesus' feet. Okay, she falls at Jesus' feet. And that's a good place to be, but she's not quite ready yet. Can you imagine? She falls at Jesus' feet and she looks in those eyes. And I guarantee you when she looked in those eyes, she did not see eyes of lust. She didn't see eyes of hate or prejudice. She saw eyes of compassion. But Jesus was determined to help this woman. And this would be a painful process. You know, sometimes to get the help we need, it takes some serious pain because we're so stubborn. And why? If you don't know Jesus, why do you have to suffer more? Why do you have to go through more sin and hurt people and hurt yourself? Why do you have to continue when this God is offering you a way of escape, a new life, this, this wonderful life in Him? Why do you have to be persistent in the rebellion when it's only going to hurt you and the people you claim to love? We're crazy people. We really are. You know, so she's, she's coming to a place of desperation of what she really needs to be, but there's one more step to it. She looks at him in those eyes and says, Lord, help me. And then he said, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Now, I'm not going to tell you I fully understand this. Because this is tough. This is tough stuff. Because in Middle Eastern culture, even today, but especially 2,000 years ago, dogs, to be referred to as a dog, was like the lowest of the low. I mean, it was like, that was degrading. Um, back when the uh, Gulf War started, and it had gone on for a little bit, uh, uh, President Bush was over, over there, and uh, having some type of, uh, of um, uh, you know, interview with uh, the people, and a guy went and took one of the, uh, uh, one of the reporters, took a shoe and threw it at him. Western people don't think anything about that. Middle Eastern People think totally different. That was one of the biggest insults they could do to take a shoe and throw it at him. You know, so they didn't, you know, he moved and it didn't hit him or anything else and everybody laughed. But I'll, I'll tell you what, the Arab world wasn't. You know, it was a whole different thing. They looked at a whole different thing. So Jesus is referring to her as a dog, metaphorically a term of contempt. Now you think it's time to run away? You think it's time for her to cop an attitude at Jesus? What does she do? She responds, yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. That is absolutely astounding. In essence, she was saying, yes, Lord, I'm as a dog. I don't deserve anything you have to give me. I don't deserve you to heal my daughter. I don't deserve you to help me. I'm not coming to you because I deserve it. I'm coming to you because I have no other option. You are my only hope. That's why Jesus was bringing her to this point right here to understand her desperate need more than she ever understood until that point. She was now at this place where there was a desperation. And you notice what was going on here? Or let me say what wasn't going on? She wasn't blaming anybody else. She wasn't blame-shifting that we Americans are so, so good at where we blame everybody else. Well, I'm in this condition because my parents did that and this person did that and the, the marriage ended up in divorce because my wife did this or my husband did that. I mean, we got a litany of all the excuses that we can do of why we do what we do and not accept responsibility. The woman was not looking for an excuse. She didn't even blame Jesus. She didn't say, well, well I'm in this situation because look, you could help me, but, but look what you're saying to me. There was no blame shifting. She understood her need, and that's all that mattered right now. She understood the reality of that and was desperate. And that put her right smack dab in the middle of the place where Jesus can do a miracle. We're in, the church in America is in desperate need a fresh Pentecost. We become so accustomed to the aspect of not having the power of God that we're not really bothered by it. But yet there's nothing we can do that will please God unless it's done in faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please Him. We can't be saved if there is not faith. 
Because salvation comes by grace or through grace by faith. It's the only way we can be saved. Everything in our life hinges, rests upon faith. I mean, what do we do? We, we diminish it or we, we ignore it. And what has happened then, you have the whole perversion of the teaching of, of faith through the whole prosperity movement that now has, has all kinds of preachers and teachers afraid to deal with it because of the, the abuse that's gone on. But it doesn't change the reality of how important faith is in our life, how important it is to the faith itself, that we need to be people that begin to believe the promises of God, believe that God forgives, believe that God changes people, gives new life, new heart, new mind, that there is power with God to deliver, that there's power with God to set people free to transform their life completely and utterly that he is able to enter into your situation and your circumstance right where you're at and he's able to help you through that that he's able to heal your body but our culture has developed such this this web of unbelief it's just, it's just crazy, this unbelief that wraps itself around us and keeps us from seeing what God wants to do because we're not willing to believe because belief is scary in one sense because we don't have control then. And we so often want control in our life even if everything is going out of control. But to, faith, to have faith means I got to say I don't have the ability in myself, I don't have it in me, and Jesus, I am coming to you and throwing myself upon you. great faith great faith that sees God do great things is great dependence upon him and that's what God wants why am I doing this discipleship again because I want to see men and women be raised up that are going to be radicals with the fire of God burning in their bones I want to hear the stories where you are seeing the blind see the lame walk the deaf hear that's what God wants. There's five things in this woman's life I just want to touch on and that were so important. The first thing is she became desperate for Jesus. And you know, coming to that place of desperation is, can be very painful. You know, she's going through a very painful process in her life to come to this place of desperation. You know, Jesus would have saved her way before this. But she didn't want saving then. Would have saved her even in the midst of, the, of all that's going on when she's looking to all the, the sorcerers and priests and all the other places that she's going to try and find healing for her daughter. He would have saved her then and changed her daughter then, but she wasn't ready. So what had to happen? She had to go through all this pain, more and more and more pain. Jesus would have done something for her prior to that, but she wouldn't let him. But now finally, she's come to the place of desperation. Finally, God has had to go and take, take idol after idol and pillar of the world and so on out from underneath her that she has no support of anything. That all that's left then is either to look to, to Jesus for healing or it's just despair and hopelessness. And that's a painful process to come to. But she was coming to that place where she was growing desperate. You know what, church? We are not going to see God do the signs and wonders, the miracles that he wants to do until we become desperate for that, until we become desperate for the move of God, until we become desperate for God to begin to work through frail people, until we will crucify our unbelief and see that God wants to use us, wants us to believe the promises of God, that it's available to us, not because we're special. He responds to faith. And when faith is an action in our life, God does wonders through that. It's not because we're special, not because we have some, uh, you know, some right to it, but we begin to believe this God of miracles. Second thing she did because she grew desperate, she humbled herself. You see, if you're not right with Jesus this morning, you're not going to get right with Jesus this morning unless you grow desperate, and you're not going to grow desperate until you're willing to humble yourself before God. Your pride will keep you from an altar of repentance this morning. When I open this altar up for you to give your life to Christ, this altar will, will, be, will, will be just empty because you won't come because you have so much pride. And you know you need to get right. You know you need to get right. But that pride is keeping you. Why? Because you're not desperate. So like I asked earlier, how much more pain and suffering and sin do you have to go through until finally you're desperate? Do you think you'll get there when you're on your deathbed finally? Or do you think by that time your heart will be so hard that you will not even consider him and in your anger at God you will die in that condition. And so she became desperate. She humbled herself. 
And she acknowledged that Jesus was right and she was wrong. You know, it's just, I have a real problem with this. A real problem. I do not like how it's so often referred to that we make a mistake. Okay? You know, nobody goes to hell because they make a mistake. People go to hell because they're rebels. They're lawbreakers. They are hostile to God. They refuse to bow to him. They refuse to acknowledge him. You understand? We don't make little mistakes. When we make mistakes, it's, you know, you forgot where your keys were or you, you know, you, you ran into somebody's car and it was an accident type of thing. Sin is never a mistake. Sin is always 100% a deliberate act. It is always purposed in the heart of an individual. They choose to do it. If it's spontaneous, it's not really spontaneous because the motions of sin has already been in their life bringing to the point of acting upon it at that particular point. It is always deliberate. If you think you just have some mistakes in your life, you are grossly deceived. You have not had mistakes. You have had sin. And it has separated you from God. Until you acknowledge that, there's no hope of repentance for you. There's no, the gift of salvation is withheld from you because you will not come to the point to acknowledge that Jesus is right and you are wrong. The fourth thing she did is she was coming to Jesus and surrendering to him. You see, that's what he was after at that altar. That's what he wanted. In essence, at that altar, at his feet where she fell down, that was her altar, and that's where she was giving up, surrendering. And that's where she found this wonderful, kind, merciful Savior. That's where she found him, in that condition, in that place. And you see, this surrender is the only right response to what Jesus did on the cross. And this surrender is to choose the death of our self-sufficiency. And what has our self-sufficiency gotten us? Absolutely nothing good. But you know what this dependency upon God gives us? Life, hope, future. It offers so much that we can't even understand how much it offers us final thing is she had prevailing faith she finally lay hold of the promise she had faith that pressed through and grabbed hold of the promise and that's when god responds that's what he loves to see in us when we come to face place to believe him to believe his promises to lay hold of him and says i'm not going to give in to this unbelief the lies the depression the fears all these other things i'm not going to let it dominate my life because there is a god that is truly there for me that is wanting me to overcome that is offering me everything i need for victory defeat is always of my own making never of god's and it happens because i will not then believe the promises of god to lay hold of what he really wants to do in my life and so she came to the place and wouldn't be denied. Isn't that a good thing? Came to the place and wouldn't be denied. That was building her when she first started crying out. And when she went crazy, crying out more and more and more, until eventually she could find this opening and, and rush between them all and then fell at Jesus' feet. You understand? She is growing in desperation more and more. It's this place where she is saying, I can't be denied. I cannot leave this place until Jesus does this for me. I must have this. Is there anybody here that you won't leave this church this morning until he saves your soul, until he delivers you from the bondage of sin and the judgment of hell? Is there anybody here that you're willing to come to that place and throw yourself on him to understand today is a day of salvation. The promises are being offered to you. You'll run home. You'll run to him. Because you see this gift to be so great, so wonderful. And you see no other remedy for your life. No other remedy. Well, the first group of discipleship. Here's a pop quiz. What did Tozer say faith is? it right there you quoted it when you preached last time yeah absolutely beautiful faith is the gaze of a soul upon a saving god when you finally come to the point and all the junk all the sin all the world all the idols they're just gone they're just they're worthless they're nothing anymore and you look up and you see this beautiful face this beautiful savior that's there and you see eyes so sweet so tender so pleading. 
it's in that gaze that faith becomes mountain moving. That faith becomes powerful because you look at him and you look in those eyes and you realize you could never lie to me. What you said is true. And you believe. And so what did Jesus do? Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. I guarantee you that woman was never, ever the same. There was a revolution that went on inside of this woman's life. She could not go back. She could not go back to the old idols and the gods she worshipped. She could not go back to the same old sins. She couldn't do that anymore. And what she would bring to her little girl now would be hope and a future rather than a life of bondage and misery and pain and demon possession. You see, God is attracted to weakness. He cannot resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need Him. He's attracted to that because it's when we as a creature finally come to the place that I need you, I can't survive without you, and then if we can even take it further, I don't want to survive without you. I have found you to be so good, so wonderful, so kind, and I know some of you have never tasted what I'm talking about, but there's a God that is so good and wants to show himself good to you. This is not a make-believe religion. This isn't some man-made idol. This is a relationship with the living God that makes himself real to people that they know the wonder of this love. It's what's being offered to you if you would but run to him and understand. If you're a Christian and you've not really come to the depth of what that is or to understand that it's something you need to begin to passionately seek after. God, I want to know that kind of faith. I want that kind of relationship with you that I know that love that surpasses human understanding because he makes it available for any person that would run home to him. Father, we come before you now in the precious wonderful name of Jesus. Lord, your heart, your heart yearns for your people, dear Jesus. You yearn for your people. You want them to know the wonder of who you are. You want to shower upon them your tender mercy. And you're just waiting for us to become desperate enough. And Lord, your heart yearns for those who don't know you. You yearn for them to run, Lord. That's why you died. You died on the cross that they could run to you, O oh God. That they could run away from their sin and the world and all the junk this world has to give and run into your arms that are wide open. And you are inviting and asking them to come, O oh God. Help them to understand the amazing love that you are offering them. Lord, that you might bring some to salvation. And Lord, that you might bring a passionate pursuit of your people, dear God, that they would begin to passionately and desperately pursue you more than they've ever known because they're starting to see you a little more clearly, oh God. Do this work in Jesus' name. If you are not a Christian, if you're a backslider, I'm going to open this altar up in just a moment. And I want you to lay aside the foolishness of pride and just come to an altar. For one purpose, you're coming to meet with Jesus. You need forgiveness. And there's nobody else that can give it to you. There's no other place you can go. And so you come to an altar that you can fall at his feet and look in those eyes and see eyes that are filled with forgiveness and the desire to reconcile you to himself. He is wanting you to run home to him. Please don't fight against him. What good would it do? Would everybody please stand?
you want to run home to Jesus, I want you right now to step down this aisle. Come forward. Lay aside your pride. Lay aside your fear. Come to this altar right now. Come. This altar's open for you. Please. Do not resist his call. Do not resist his invitation. Please come.